Hey guys, this is Mindcast with your host, Kevin Seaman, where we talk about what's going on in your head. This is your host of Mindcast, Kevin Seaman. Welcome to episode 23, The Seven Ways You Listen. You're talking to a friend and you notice that they're not present in the conversation. So you stop and they look right at you as though you shook them out of a dream. Sound familiar? Or you're sitting with a friend and they're listening while they peer right in your eyes, leaning in to almost everything you say, hanging on to every word. Also sound familiar? Well, it should. It's happened to you many, many times in your life in similar scenarios. There are also times when you may be listening selectively and catch only parts of an intended message. This could be why your spouse or friend has claimed, you never listen to me. In fact, the reality is we listen at one or more of seven basic receptions. Those levels of reception designate how you process the dialogue presented. Here's what the research has found. Number one, you will pretend to listen. We hear what the other person is saying, but we're not receiving the intended message. This usually occurs when we have something else weighing on us internally. We're just not tuning in. It can also happen if the chatter is mindless and doesn't seem important or possibly not something you deem important. It can happen if you have a challenge with ADD or ADHD and your mind is wandering. This can also occur when you are inadvertently focused on something else and you still pretend to listen but you're not really receiving the broadcasted dialogue. If someone has begun talking to you while you're already involved or finishing up something, it's common to pretend to listen while you finish what you're reading or doing. Number two on the list, you ignore the person speaking completely. You tune them out. This may happen if you've heard the message spewed several times, making it less pertinent or interesting. You simply ignore the person talking. This may be useful if you're engaged in another conversation or listening to something that you deem important. It becomes background noise. This sometimes happens in communication with parents and children. You just change the channel and you don't listen. It's just background noise. The message is being transmitted, but you've chosen not to receive it. Number three, you listen selectively. You hear parts of the often one-sided conversation, but are not entirely tuned in. Sometimes this can happen when you focus your attention on some specific information. Selective listening is a listening technique that filters and summarizes to achieve comprehension. You consciously or unconsciously choose to listen to what is relevant to you and ignore what isn't. Selective hearing can help your brain recognize the information that is most important and allow that information to be noticed. The brain handles sensory information automatically at lower levels of awareness. People do make choices when listening. We apply filters. Sometimes you half listen to get a general impression of what's said. Sometimes you may do this while developing a response to what is being said. 
Listening to respond is a separate form of listening reception, but can also be the reason for selective listening. Selective listening can also be a positive thing. For example, if someone is talking to you and there is other noise, conversations, or auditory stimulus present, it can help you to tune in to what that person is saying, rather than everything else that is being heard around you. Selective listening also allows you to summarize information while multitasking. It can also be enabled to filter out what you may see as unimportant and focus on high-priority information, similar to skimming an article in a magazine or a newspaper. Can you imagine if you didn't have this ability and you literally heard everything around you, every noise, every sound, and every conversation at the same decibel or on the same frequency? It would be nearly impossible to take everything in. There is some fascinating information in regard to how we listen biologically, the science behind it, and how we filter sound waves and why, by the brilliant neuroscientist Dr. Andrew Huberman, PhD, at Stanford University. I highly recommend listening to the Huberman Lab podcast, where he discusses science and science-based tools for everyday life. It's extraordinary and valuable. As with my Mindcast, it's available on every major podcast provider. The episode I'm referencing here is episode 27, The Science of Hearing, Balance, and Accelerated Learning. But I found all the episodes I've listened to remarkably valuable. So check it out. That's the Huberman Lab podcast. Okay, on to number four, listening to respond. Have you ever experienced when someone is hanging on to your every word, but not because what you are saying is important to them, but rather to impart to you their experience with a similar event, feeling, or situation? It's like they wait for that moment to remark on your subject, but only in relation to how it has somehow happened to them. As they listen, they're building a case of relativity, a response that is focused on their experience, opinion, or view, and purposely interrupt to invest this bit of trivial-related information, whether you want it or not. This is impulsive and not necessary in most cases, but they just can't help themselves. They need to make this about them as well. Listening to respond is one of the most debilitating forms of reception, unless you're involved in a debate and it disjoins you from the message the transmitter is hoping to present. Now, this is not to say that this is not also useful. In small talk or in conversations, interaction is crucial to conversing. It is a basis of conversational interaction between two or more individuals. This is different than waiting to build your case or being heard by listening merely to respond. Being aware of when and how it's used can make it interactive or interruptive. Remember, it's not about you. Listening to understand rather than to be understood is a powerful skill. It often opens the heart and mind of another to your view once you have sought to understand theirs. Let's touch on this a little deeper. Okay, number five. You listen attentively. This occurs when you are tuned in 
and focused without interruption. You're ingesting everything, but not just with your ears. You see what they're saying with your eyes. You are invested in the message. And this is apparent to you, the connection, and anybody observant of the conversation. You are 100% tuned in. The skill of listening attentively is crucial when there is critical information to be transmitted. This is the state of being in learning mode, taking in every detail, tuning into body language and posture, pupil activity, facial expression, and voice cues in regard to speed, volume, and inflection. You are completely invested and receptive. I love this quote by Krishnamurti. When you are listening to somebody completely and attentively, then you are listening not only to the words, but also to the feeling of what is conveyed, to the whole of it, not part of it. Number six, you listen empathetically. Listening empathetically is when you tune into a person's expression emotionally. You seek to understand what they are conveying to you, not just verbally, but on a deeper emotional level. For some people, opening themselves up to you is difficult. It means they're exposing themselves emotionally. It could also give them a feeling of vulnerability, a feeling that they may be judged. To listen intently to them means you're tuning into their emotional frequency without the need to judge, solve, or interpret. Sometimes, it's just about being listened to that serves us and releases our anxiety or inward tensions. It gives us a feeling of connection. It's the act of validation and the empathy of the listener that makes someone feel as though you are really listening, as though you really hear them. Many times, this in itself, to have our feelings validated, is all we're seeking when we open up to somebody. And the connection that comes through that sort of validation is powerful. If the emotions we are feeling are validated when something is bothering us and weighing on our consciousness, it's as if an instant rapport has been established when a person relates to you empathetically in this way. We don't want a solution, nor do we want to be told how we should feel. We just need to feel there is validity in how we feel. Now, if you're a fixer, it can be hard to abstain from wanting to offer solutions and fix the predicament that is creating the negative emotions in that person. One thing you should remember is negative emotions are not necessarily bad. They are in many cases just signaling that something may need to change. In fact, this stigma in our culture that positive emotions are inherently good and negative emotions are bad and need to be fixed leads to a propensity that if we feel negative emotions, we feel bad, and that we are broken. The truth is, emotions are not good or bad. They just are. So when we validate how someone may be feeling, it can be almost healing in its effect. If someone appears to be in a low mood, it is many times because of an outside stimulus, and their mood and emotional state is part of the response to that stimulus. If they're willing to open up to you, it's a good possibility that they're not looking for advice, but just for you to listen. So saying something that is supportive, such as, I can't imagine how that must make you feel, is tuning into their frequency. 
It's an act of empathy that says, I get it, and I'm sorry you're going through this right now. It can't be easy, and I'm sorry you're feeling this way. This support gives a feeling that we're not alone in this situation, that we have an empathically supportive liaison. Also often, we just need a feeling that we're understood, or at least heard. Most times, we already know the answer or solution to our challenge because we've pondered the question over and over in our head. So trying to solve the dilemma is not conducive to reception by us at that point. However, once we feel the connection of empathy, we will usually let our guard down and be more likely to listen to how we can better deal with or work through a problem. This gaining of rapport is especially important when interacting with children. Sometimes parents have the tendency to just talk at their children rather than truly listen to them until they realize that we might understand the emotions they're feeling, they will usually stay within themselves and withdraw from interacting. Now, I'm not a child psychologist, but as a teacher and coach, I have had the opportunity to interact with hundreds of children in a learning environment. When dealing with athletes that have taken a loss or performed badly and are taking it hard emotionally, I would often say, what did you learn? This interrupts the pattern of feeling defeated and focuses on what benefit may have come from the event experienced and the emotions they're feeling because of their outcome. Then I listen attentively to their version of what they may see as their paradigm shifts from how they feel emotionally at the moment to how they may be able to use this experience to improve their outcome in the future. In regard to this, I'm not asking them to feel differently or give them options of what they need to do to fix something. Instead, I'm allowing them the opportunity to look within themselves to establish a possible positive insight for the event. The last one, number seven, you listen inwardly. I have done a few sections on self-talk or inner dialogue in episodes of Mindcast. It is one of the most powerful methods of communication in that it happens constantly throughout the day. As I mentioned, we communicate internally tens of thousands of times per day. Unfortunately for many individuals, that self-talk is negative in nature. Yet this is one of the basic three things we actually have control of in our lives. We can control how we talk to ourselves and others. We can control the pictures or mental videos that we choose to make in our mind, or mental imagery, and we can control our actions. The stark reality is uh, everything that we think we can control is an illusion of control. So it is in our very best interest to listen to ourselves internally, to ask ourselves, why are we feeling a certain way, and to even question the validity of our self-experience. Is it intuitive? Is it a signal to take a different approach? That something might need to change. Is it something that we had control over? In other words, was it in our circle of influence? Or was it something that we did not have control of it? Was it outside of our circle of influence? One of the most profound things I've ever been told was, if you believe in something, and it's something that you can personally do something about to change or make better, 
put your heart into it to make it better or to make it become a reality. If you cannot do anything about it in regard to changing it, let it go. Don't let it eat away at you. If it's outside your circle of influence, you will never do anything to change it. Just let it go. So listen and try to tune into how you listen and whether you listen with minimal or intentional perception with individuals in your life. Awareness is the first step to change or improvement. Listening is a powerful gift. Utilize it. Please do me a favor this week and share Mindcast with two of your friends. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment when available. Thank you so much for tuning into Mindcast. Until next time, this is Kevin Seaman, and this is Mindcast.